And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Oh, it's such a warm, lovely day. We should go to the beach. The beach? Yeah, we should go to that, that beach we go to out on Northerly Island. Oh, you hate that beach. Well, you just I- hate the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... I guess I would prefer if they just covered that whole area with something more interesting, you know, buildings, exhibits, uh-huh. just basically anything but a beach, if if only such a thing could possibly exist. You know they did that. What? Yes, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Do tell. Okay, well today we are talking about the Century of Progress International Exposition. All right, but what's that when it's at home? That is way too much of a mouthful. The Chicago World's Fair of 1933 oh. and 1934. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice and simple there, compared to the Century of Progress International Exposition. That's not even a good acronym. That's uh, a lot of words. <laughs> yes. But first, you're going to hate this. Am We're going to start at the very beginning. I do enjoy context. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of World's Fairs. Okay. Okay. The origin Mm -hmm. of these World's Fairs came um, from a French tradition of, like, national exhibitions. Doesn't it always? Uh, Culminating uh, with the French Industrial Exposition of 1844 in Paris. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how it all, where it all came from. But what's really thought of as the first World Expo was what took place at the Crystal Palace in London in 1951. It was called the Great Exhibition, or the Great Expedition of the Works of Industry Industry of All Nations. That is hard to say. There's so many words. I'm so glad they came up with the term World's Fair eventually. Instead of whatever I just said, I'm not going to try it again. Yeah. Always try to keep your exposition separate from your exhibition. <laughs> it's important to show, don't tell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exhibition's going to be a word that's going to trip me up this whole episode, <laughs> just going to say. So that one, though, came from the idea of Prince Albert. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of his baby project of, like, An idea of Prince Albert's, not the idea. Like, not not the Prince Albert, an idea of the person to have this fair. The not platonic the thing, ideal of Prince Albert thing. is a fair, not even a prince. Yeah. It's weird. So since the start, fairs, these expos uh, evolved. There are three eras that can be seen. Uh, there's what is considered the era of industrialization, mm-hmm. uh, which is fairs that ran from 1951, uh, starting with the... Prince Al's. Prince Al's, starting with his. I'm going to try not to say that word. Until uh, 1938. And this Uh, would include Chicago's more famous World's Fair. Well, this would include both of uh, Chicago's World's Fairs. Yes, it would include the Chicago Fair of 1893 and the one we are currently talking about from 1933. I just want to throw a line to the people who might have been expecting the Columbian Exhibition instead. You already did an episode on that elsewhere. I did, and that'll be in the show notes. One one day I am planning to come back to that. Yeah. And tie it much more into, uh... That thing in the show notes is a little five-minute video version. This is an hour-ish yes. of audio on, on the more recent Chicago and, Fair. And one day I do want to do that one. And I also, uh, more like Devil in the White City route. H.H. H. Holmes route. I'm sure. You know, I like my death. 
I'm sure. Um, but this uh, time frame also includes the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. Mm-hmm. You know, meet me in St. Louis. That film you love. That film I love. That was a fair. That, that's a real one. <laughs> it's the final scene, yeah. yes. But, and then there, after that, is uh, what they called the Era of Cultural Exchange from 1939 to 1987. Uh, so it focused instead of on trade and technological innovation and state-of-the-art science and technology like the past era, uh, this was more cultural themes, uh, better future for society, mm-hmm. uh, intercultural communications, exchanges of ideas. Yeah. This would include the 1964 New York World's Fair, which we talked about in our Walt Disney episode. It had a bit of a cameo as background. Yes, yes. The theme was peace through understanding. So (laughs) kind of gathering those cultural exchanges there. Let's invent it's a small world and then not shoot nuclear missiles at each other. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I get it. Uh, and then we have the era from 1988 to present, which this might be a shock to people. World's fairs still happen. I learned something today. Yes, they still happen. The focus is more on uh, nation branding. Countries mm-hmm. using it as like a platform to improve their national image. Okay. It's much more what they are. But there are two different types of fairs that still happen. So there are registered fairs and recognized fairs. Who are they registering with? There is an organization. And who is recognizing uh, them? That, that uh, runs these fairs. So for registered fairs, um, it's kind of like the Olympics where cities bid to get it. Uh-huh. Um, they have, tend to happen only every five or more years because of the cost and time needed to build them and also the bidding process to get the fair to come to you. And there's an organization that oversees all this. Mm-hmm. Recognized fairs are much smaller in time and cost, um, and the themes are a lot narrower. Or, or as an example, there uh, is currently a recognized expo happening right now. Right now, like well, let's pack our bags. Uh, it is. It started in June and is going through September. September and is called Expo 2017, <laughs> and it is in Kazakhstan. At least the names got a lot punchier, right? In, in recent Expo decades, 2017, nice and simple. That's all you need to know. Uh, yeah, so that's happening in Kazakhstan. The theme is uh, future energy. Okay. As I said, a narrower theme mm-hmm. in those types of things. The last World Expo, so a registered fair, happened in 2015 in Milan, Italy. And we missed it. We did miss it. Uh, I believe they are still bidding for where it goes next. Mm-hmm. The One other thing knows that most of the structures that are made for World's Fairs are temporary. And meant mm-hmm. to come down, which I think we know because the lakefront does not look at all like what they built there. <laughs> um, but there are still a few big places that remain from some of the fairs. There's the Crystal Palace in London, mm-hmm. uh, Museum of Science and Industry here in Chicago from the first fair that happened here. Art Institute building was a part of that as well. Yeah. Uh, the Space Needle in Seattle, the Eiffel Tower in Paris. I did not know about the Space Needle. Yes. I've learned two things. Yeah. I'm keeping a running tally. Yeah. So the uh, Seattle's World's Fair was called the Century 21 Exposition. It was branded back then? That's, <laughs> yeah. 
That's disappointing. Uh, and it was uh, in 1962, and that is when they constructed the Space Needle. So, coming back uh, to the century of progress. 1933, Dateline. Yes. Line. The fair... Uh, was doing several things. It uh, was commemorating Chicago's past and celebrating the city's centennial. That was the century of progress. Yes. 100 years since Chicago's founding. Yes. Uh, it also uh, was happening in the midst of the Great Depression. So it was really used as like a symbol of like hope and like things will get better. <laughs> it's okay. So we had a century of progress and we had Shirley Temple and that's all that was going to get us through the day. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the theme for the fair was technological innovation, and the motto was science finds, industry applies, man adapts. That sounds like something a science fiction villain would say, but whatever. <laughs> I can live with it. Uh, so about five years before the fair opened, uh, in January 1928, a century of progress was organized as a nonprofit corporation to plan and host the fair. Back when they thought that the money would still be coming in by dump truck and, and the illegal gin trade will, will never stop. Yeah. 1928 was a different world to 1933. Yes, it was. Uh, so the city designated three and a half miles of newly reclaimed land along uh, Lake Michigan between 12th Street and 39th Street. Uh, along the near south side for the fair. The fair opened May 27th, 1933. All right. You know, five years, you can get a lot done, I would hope. Yeah. 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 Uh, so unlike the White City, the fair of, you know, 1893, uh, which was known for having very uh, classic designed buildings, lots of white buildings. Yeah. It, uh, it was it, considered like a glowing white city, basically. It's sort of... Maybe not invented, but certainly popularized neoclassical architecture. Yes. It, it's the reason your local uh, post office, town hall, and bank probably have Roman-style columns, even though they were built in, like, the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, for this fair, they went a very different way. Mm -hmm. The buildings were... It's what I would call, like, a rainbow city. <laughs> if... Every different color was used with very modern architecture. Nice. Uh, now, the architectural style and layout was led by Paul Kret and Raymond Hood. Uh, they, they, along with members of a committee, um, which included several architects, uh, including Edward Bennett and Hubert Burnham. Hubert Burnham? Yeah. That's a recognizable name. Yeah. Is there any relation between Hubert Burnham and Daniel Burnham? Yeah, it's his son. Oh! Yeah. Also, also, he also uh, designed one of my favorite Chicago buildings. Which one? Carbon and Carbite Building. Oh, so the new... Uh, Hard Rock Hotel that's yeah. all green. The green building with the, the Art Deco. The Art Deco building that looks like a champagne bottle. Yeah. Yeah. It's so pretty. It's my favorite. Yeah, so they were responsible for uh, designing most of the large pavilions that were used in buildings for the expo. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was purposely left off of this <laughs> committee as uh, he was really... He was known for his inability to work well with others. Yeah. 
Yeah, so he wasn't invited. Um, but he, he, he did was going to make every countertop in every pavilion perfectly his size. Yeah. Yeah. Their ideas were that the buildings needed to reflect a new, modern idea um, and suggestions for future architectural development. Which is like the exact opposite of the Columbian Exhibition. Yes. Just exact opposite. Something that contemporary architects who weren't building it back in the 1890s yeah. really attacked it for. Which, and I, I have a lot of links we're going to put up of various uh, pictures and like brochures and stuff for the fair. And oh my gosh, some of the things they built. <laughs> it is like, it's so many things mushed together. Nice. It's, I wish like film from that time was like, brighter <laughs> because i'm pretty sure my eyes would like burn out of their sockets from like the color <laughs> it's it's nuts so the land um mm-hmm. that they were building on new man-made land and it was owned by the state at that time not the city so the land was actually free of a lot of chicago's strict building codes uh, <laughs> thus they could use a lot of new materials and techniques i'm just gonna that... guess everything burned down without chicago <laughs> fire code just instantly well i i don't think it's so much that is that the materials they used um mm-hmm. they they were a lot more open to things they could build it's something cool. out of wood if they wanted paper mache soaked in kerosene why not go hog wild <laughs> in uh the two years that the fair was open which the two years were, it wasn't like two full years. They were more so open for like the season. They did not stay mm-hmm. open through Chicago's winter. That's They good. closed for a while. Um, but they had uh, 48, almost almost 49 million visitors. <laughs> I'm going to say like there is so much stuff about this fair. We are not going to touch on it all. And that is a shame. <laughs> uh, I feel like this could be like a four part thing. So we're going to touch on some of it, though. The opening night of the fair mm-hmm. was what they called a nod to the heavens. <laughs> I nod at the heavens all the time. Heavens look down <laughs> at me and I give them that friendly, like, hey, what's up, nod. And they did what I consider the most difficult, unnecessary thing to turn on a light switch <laughs> to light the fair. <laughs> so they had Rube Goldberg himself come out and design a machine. The lights were automatically activated by the rays of a star. <laughs> so let's go into detail about yeah, this a bit more. Yeah, how does that work? So early in the 1930s, astronomers estimated that Arcturus's uh, distance was 40 light years. Okay. Now, Edwin Frost, a retired director of uh, Yerkes Observatory in Williams Bay, Wisconsin, uh, had the idea to use Arcturus to light the fair because the past fair in Chicago happened 40 years prior. Oh. Oh. So the idea was that it would connect it to the past fair because when the so, light had left. Yeah, the, the light would, that was generated back during the Columbian Exhibition. Would just be reaching Would be us. arriving during Century of Progress. That's really sweet. Yes. Yeah. Only thing is we now know that it's more like 37 light years away, but whatever. Hey, the Columbian Exhibition <laughs> celebrated 400 years since Columbus's first journey on the 401st anniversary. We can fudge things. We can fudge things. So at the time, uh, photocell, uh, which was a device that uh, produces electric current when exposed to light, was really big. What they did was they focused the light 
of the star onto a photocell and then use the electric current to generate a flip switch to turn on the lights. <laughs> Yerk's observatory was picked uh, for the job, but they did have the issue of what if it's cloudy? So they had to bring a few others in on uh, telescopes at University of Illinois Urbana, uh, Harvard College, and Allegheny Observatory all uh, participated in this. So open- but what if it's cloudy everywhere? everywhere? You just screwed. <laughs> uh, someone's just going to have to flip the light switch. Like, Achoo. Oh, whoop. No, it's totally the star. I swear. I swear. Ta-da. Ta-da. So on opening day, uh, 30,000 people were there. Nice, nice. Uh, the fair president, Rufus C. Dawes, spoke. Would you like to read his speech? Sure. I got to get into my, my period yeah. thing. It's, it's 1933, you said? Yes. We recall the Great Columbian Exposition of 1893. Never will its beauty be surpassed. Never will there be held an exposition of more lasting value to this city. It was for Chicago a great triumph. We remind ourselves of that triumph tonight by taking rays of light that left the star Arcturus during the period of that exposition, and which have traveled at the rate of 186,000 miles a second until at last they have reached us. We shall use these rays to put into operation the mysterious forces of electricity, which shall make light our grounds, decorate our buildings with brilliant colors, and move the machinery of the exposition. There is totally a video we are linking where the dude sounds exactly like that. <laughs> really? Yes, it's like it's like a newsreel type 10 minute video about the fair and he talks exactly like that. You're welcome. <laughs> so, the four observations... Wait, wait, can I just rewind uh-huh, a bit uh-huh. and talk about how the, the mysterious whole... forces of electricity? No, no, a little farther behind that. Okay. About how they're basically negging this exposition, like... Okay, we know some of you people were alive for the other one. You don't got to tell us this is not. This, wasn't this is going to be second best. We know. Right? But let's have a good time. <laughs> That's how a lot of it I felt was really? when they were preparing for it. was like, well, it won't be as good, but we'll do it again. Because <laughs> they were so focused on like, well, so long ago we did this already and it was amazing and it was beautiful and it was this and we're well, trying like, again. I hate to keep harking back on it. But because I did do that earlier thing, I feel like I know a lot about the Columbian exposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's hard. The hard word. It really did change the course of the world. It, it may have, you could easily argue, invented modernity itself. There was less time between that fair and the whole city burning down than yeah. there was between that fair and this one. Like, it's an incredible achievement. Well, that's like... The big thing I also feel like with that fair is that the city did burn down not too long before, and yeah. they had completely re- rebuilt, and then they built all this stuff too. But if you want to talk about handicaps, like this is in the middle, 1933 was the worst year of the Depression. Yes. The four observatories uh, you know, took the light, focused it on photocells, sent the electric current by Western Union Telegraph. How? Oh, yeah, telegraph, not the telegraph. actual printed telegram, the lines. Okay, that uh, makes sense. To the grounds, and the switch was thrown, and then a searchlight at the top of the Hall of Science shot a great white beam across the sky. So you can't see the dang stars while yeah. you're trying to, like, now, this was thank them, I guess. such, like, a huge hit mm-hmm. that they basically, like, bullied the Elgin Observatory, which was nearby, to do the same thing every night for the rest of the year. 
the fair was open. You can just turn on the big light. That's and tell all, everyone you did it. That's all anybody cares about. Nope, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do it. This is the one time Chicago isn't corrupt. Right. One thing that's really interesting is, like, I feel like a lot of fair success was kind of luck. <laughs> so, you know, first off, the fair was only supposed to run until November of that year. Right. In 1933. But then it opened again the next year, May to October. Now, the reason they were able to do this during the Great Depression yeah. was, first off, much of it was financed through the sale of memberships ahead of time. Oh. So uh, people could purchase a certain number of emissions to use once it was open. Buy your annual pass in advance. Yeah. They kickstarted it. They raised about uh, $800,000 that way. <laughs> a lot of stretch goals right yeah. there. Yeah. They also were issued a $10 million bond. On October 28th, 1929. The day before the stock market crashed. (laughs) (laughs) That's what did it. That's the straw that broke the camel's back right there. The luck. The (laughs) luck they had. Can you imagine if it would have been a day later? (laughs) The official concession of the fair, sawdust. (laughs) Chew on it. Why not? Now, one thing that's amazing with this, though, is that the entire debt... For the fair was paid off completely by the time it closed in 1934. <laughs> the first time in American history that an international fair paid for itself. Yeah. And in the middle of the Depression. There was a lot of stuff happening at this fair. And as I said, we're not going to touch on it all because there's too much. There, Some of the things that were there was uh, automobile manufacturers uh, had things. Um, there were dream cars that were seen. Uh, the one video we're going to show that has that crazy voice, mm-hmm. um, I'd say like half of the video is them actually advertising the like car test track they have. <laughs> now with roofs. The car flips over and then like <laughs> four dudes just come and lift it back up and they're like, that's what it, amazing. It's made with steel, <laughs> not a scratch on it. <laughs> I was like, someone's going to die. <laughs> Certain things that were seen there were, uh, you know, various limousines, um, new vertical parking garages Whoa. Uh, that were very different. Um, there was also uh, displays on the recreation of Chicago history. The German airship Graf Zeppelin mm-hmm. uh, arrived on October 26, 1933. Uh, it circled the fair for several hours before uh, heading out to Glenview to land. Uh, this was very exciting for some, and... Very not exciting for some because what? Hitler. It's just, it's just a big German airship. You know, in 1933, when Hitler ascended earlier that year, not a lot of people were very happy about that. But it was what? still like a major thing. There was we're, a postage stamp commemorating it. We're gonna send our best to the Olympics there next year. It'll be fine. Everyone will be very polite. <laughs> Uh, the first Major League Baseball All-Star game was held at Kaminsky Park in yeah, conjunction with this that's on right. July 6, 1933. Uh, it was initiated by Arch Ward, uh, sports editor for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, it was going to be just a one-time event, but it was so successful that it has since become annual, as we know. Yeah, we're just back from the All-Star break. Sure. Go Cubs. Go White Sox. They're winning again. I don't care about the Cubs. The Sox aren't I so mean, much. I guess I should be mad at the White Sox. They just 
traded they Melky. They traded Melky Cabrera. Who I just always liked. I love how they shouted his name. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, well, one dude I know your name of. I'm upset because they got rid of the outfielder. I know. Whose That's entrance also music was no diggity. And the best part of going to a Sox game is every few innings, you get a few seconds of no diggity. Anyways, in May 1934, uh, there was also a lot of train stuff. Mm-hmm. Rail fan coolness. It's back when you didn't have to be a weirdo to like trains. The Union Pacific Railroad exhibited uh, their first streamlined train, the M10,000. That's a lot of M's. Right. And the Burlington Route, its famous Zephyr. Train on May 26 made record-breaking dawn-to-dust run from Denver to Chicago in 13 hours, 5 minutes. Whoa! It arrived they on... They still can't do that. It arrived on stage of the fair uh, during the Wings of Century transportation pageant. Like, right up there. <laughs> uh, and it really uh, broke the mold for uh, trains, and it diesel became a big thing. Mm-hmm. Because of this. Now, the Zephyr is what is at the Museum of Science and Industry. Yeah, it's cool. It's a, it's an exhibit between the parking garage and the ticketing booth. Yeah. So Which if you're I, willing to make the drive, you don't even have to pay a dime, whatever. Well, I think it's so interesting because like, I don't think a lot of people realize like what it is. They just think, oh, it's a train. No, this this is the, like the fastest train yeah, it, of like in history type thing mm-hmm. where like it it broke records. It did crazy stuff and it's an interactive walkthrough exhibit that you can kill time well, before you buy your ticket i think that's why it's awkward yeah. who wants to waste time before the entrance whatever well if you're waiting for your friends to meet you mm-hmm. it works msi is actually full of stuff from the 33 fair yeah now there were like what you would expect offensive uh things as well uh <laughs> as if hitler wasn't bad enough well, you know, like offensive portrayals of people. Mm-hmm. A midget city. Oh, with sixty little Putians from Gulliver's Travels. That was oh. a thing. Uh, uh. I say, like that's that's what they called it, and other like offensive portrayals of people's culture and race. And a lot of this, there's also, of course, the Midway, where you get. Uh, a wide variety of displays, performances, including things though like Judy Garland and the Andrew Sisters. But then like, <laughs> you know, sideshow acts. Yeah. Kind of stuff. Yeah. It was a very odd mixture of things happening. The Paris Fair has, you know, the Eiffel Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the Space Needle. The iconic building, iconic yeah. thing was the Sky Ride for this Ooh. fair. Tell me about uh, the Sky Ride. It was a transporter bridge. Uh, it was designed by Robinson and Steinman, uh, and it ferried people across the lagoon. Uh, it is no longer standing, in case you didn't notice. It was definitely <laughs> demolished. I would have to say I haven't noticed that when we're <laughs> yeah, on our walks. Yeah. Well, you would have, because it had two 628-foot tall towers <laughs> that spanned 1,800 feet. Uh, and suspended from it was rocket-shaped cars uh, that were about 250 feet in the air and could carry 36 people each. This was like, yeah, really early space age stuff, right? Like, yeah. People were debating whether rockets were possible, according yeah. to Newton's laws. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so when they were planning this, they really wanted something that would be remembered like the Eiffel Tower, mm-hmm. like the Ferris wheel of the original Chicago Fair. Um, now, this, though, wasn't their first idea. wasn't what they were going with. Uh, originally, the proposal they were going to do, which was being underwritten by uh, Montgomery Ward, was called the Tower of Water and Light. Mm-hmm. It was a 250-foot-tall tower with, like, waterfalls on the outside. The but great then... part about building a tower out of water and light is that there's no demo costs. You just let the water splash and turn off the light. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like, waterfall happening. Uh-huh. Elevator going up the middle to an observation platform. Montgomery Ward dropped out of backing financially, so they scrapped the idea. And they went with the Skyride, which was designed by William L. Hamilton. Uh, it was a relatively cheap thing to build, and they were able to build it in six months for a million dollars. Relatively cheap. Compared to other things, you know, six <laughs> months is also not bad. 5,000 people could ride it per hour. Wow. So, what, like, what was like the charge? Are we talking like a nickel here or something? Uh, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the charge was, actually. <laughs> But whatever it is, it's, even if it's a penny a ride, that's 500 bucks an hour. That adds up over two years' worth of operation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at the time of construction, the towers were higher than any skyscraper in Chicago. And uh, it was one of the largest spans from tower to tower. Nice. Uh, each tower had four elevators, 30-person capacity. And it w- you could either like take the, the rocket cars across to the lagoon. Mm-hmm. Or you could go up even further, and each tower had an observation deck. Um, actually, two observation decks on each tower, like tele- coin-operated telescopes and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rocket ship cars were also like double-deckered, and then they had like like steam that would release out of it to look like a tail or exhaust, <laughs> like you're going. Pachoo! Yeah, yeah, and they would shine like lights up on it at night. And, like, they would follow the car moving across. Now, folks in the 30s, they knew how to party, all right? (laughs) This is showmanship. Yeah. That was the main iconic, like, image Mm -hmm. of the fair. It really, like, in a way boggles my mind that that used to stand where it stood. I've always just wanted a footbridge across. Right? But they had this huge, ridiculous landmark. And really, it should still be there, because they can't build a footbridge because of the marina that's there now. Yeah. But if we had this giant thing, could totally get across to North Early Island so much easier. They could have all my nickels. Yeah. In the midway, in the, like, France-Paris pavilion thing, uh, Sally Rand uh, performed. Mm-hmm. Now, Sally Rand was a Chicago dancer, um, and she was known for her... Fan dances. The big, uh-huh. big, giant fans. And, uh, you know, she she was very famous for playing, like, peekaboo with her, her body with the fans. And being like, so, oh, look, I'm naked, but I'm dancing with fans, but you can't see anything. <laughs> because these are, these are gigantic fans made of, like, ostrich feathers. Yeah. 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 Now, she was arrested four times in a single day during the fair. <laughs> other times uh many of those were due to perceived indecent exposure after finishing a fan dance but the fair turned a profit i'll have you know you uh, should all be thanking sally yeah. rand once uh while riding a white horse down the streets of chicago where nudity was only an illusion she wasn't <laughs> actually nude but people thought she was oh i thought you meant in chicago nudity is only an illusion no she like people thought she was nude but she was actually like 
covered. Yeah, she was wearing her mittens. Come on. Yeah. Uh, and also another time after she was like body painted. <laughs> she's arrested. She got arrested a lot. If you look at her whole entire like career, she was arrested a lot. She always found out how cold the benches at the, the police precinct were. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Right next to where she performed was the baby incubator with living babies display. Better than the alternative, can I just say? <laughs> Before we get too far. So this is actually something that was like kind of hard to find information on. And I really want to thank the history detectives. Yeah? Yeah. So there was actually an episode um, where... This lady had this cup. Uh, it was a cup with her name on it, and it had a logo from the World's Fair. She eventually found out as she got older. Well, she knew she was born pre- premature, but the like city of Chicago swooped in a few days after she was born mm-hmm. and took her to the fair, <laughs> and she was put on display there, and she wanted to find out more information about it. So this this was a thing. Babies were on display there. Um, it was... The Chicago Board of Health uh, kind of partnered with it mm-hmm. uh, with getting premature babies. By hook or by crook. Um, under dead of night. And they were put in incubators and put on display there. Did Again, her parents at least sign a release? Tell me something. Well, okay. So we're going to get to some of that in a minute. As I said, this was in the Midway. This wasn't in like a technological area. This was the Midway next to Sally, R- Sally Rand, next to like... Next to the nudie dances. Nudie dances and like freak show things. Yeah. And it was run like a sideshow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was run by a German doctor named uh, Martin Cooney. And <laughs> Look, it was 20- 20... This fair would be a lot less objectionable if it weren't for the dang Germans. All right? Can we... So it was 25 cents uh, to see a baby. Mm-hmm. And it said that he... Uh, or to see the, <laughs> That's like a week's see, wages or something. see the babies, I should say. What? Uh, and it said that he made $1,500 a day. <sighs> now, about this doctor... He did. He did have a medical degree. He did, and uh, he worked with. Uh, he was always talking about his doomsday device. <laughs> he worked with a pediatrician who made major improvements to incubators. Okay. Now sure. Cooney went on the road with um, an incubator show uh, starting in Berlin at the Berlin <laughs> Expo. The in- phrase "incubator show" makes it sound like he juggled them. <laughs> <laughs> This started in 1898. Then he came to Omaha, went to many other cities, and eventually to Chicago. Now, he was criticized by a lot of people. He was super <laughs> criticized. Uh, when he was on Coney Island, people tried to shut him down. I was going to ask if this was the Coney Island guy, yeah. Like, you got to be wondering, like, how did he get away with this? How was this allowed? How was the city work with him, working with him? It's the fact that incubators were not widely used. Mm-hmm. Parents were not charged for their children to go there. <laughs> This was, like, the only opportunity for a lot of these parents' babies to survive, mm-hmm. was to be put in these incubators during the fair. So what I've learned today is that if you want common folk to support your agenda, you need to provide free health care. Yeah. 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 Huh. Um, so, yeah, the incubators offered a chance of survival that these babies wouldn't have gotten. My initial, like, when I first heard about this was like, oh my god, how was this allowed? How did this guy do this? He sounds like an evil mastermind guy. And, like, this is kind of in the height of the American eugenics movement. Anybody doing anything with babies has got me, like, I'm ready to be skeeved. I am predisposed. You automatically want to go to him being, like, a terrible person. But his exhibit helped 
first off, prove that babies could be helped by technology. Mm-hmm. That incubators should be used. It mm-hmm. exposed a lot of, first off, people to incubators, and then also doctors in especially smaller mm-hmm. communities that would not have seen them. It is known that doctors are not people, yes. Well, I mean, like, everyday people known that, oh, this is, like, something that is available. Yeah, yeah. But then also the fact that doctors probably have heard of it, but they've never seen it. They don't work in a wealthy enough area. Yeah. They don't have the support to, like... Well, you put the baby in the... <laughs> I get it now. I was doing it all wrong. A lot of people credit him with paving the way for the wide use of incubators in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Um... And his shows, the babies had an 80% success rate of surviving. And he's credited with, throughout all the shows he did, 6,500 babies at least lived. And I would have to assume that the survival rate for premature babies in the early 30s was well below 80%. Yes. Like, what people were doing for premature babies back then was, like, putting them in a shoebox with some hay and putting it by the oven. That is the option. Okay, yeah. And, like, the focus at the time was much more not on trying... Take people's dang quarters, anything. Gosh, yeah, go for it. Well, like, leading up to, like, throughout the early 1900s, like, the focus wasn't on, like, trying to save a premature baby. It was trying to make sure that, like, babies of normal birth weight just don't die from other things. Yeah, yeah. Um, So a big big shift. Now, the cup she had, Mm -hmm. which connected this, is that... Uh, what they had was organized infant family reunions for these, like, fairs mm-hmm. um, with, like, NBC radio broadcasts and stuff. It was to bring everyone together and, like, each child was gifted, like, a cup with the fair that they were at and their name. Well, this was very much a stage thing because it was a way to show the public and other doctors, like, look, these children are doing well. Mm-hmm. They survived. They're, They're still living. They can go home. Yeah. Yeah. And this was like this was like year later, two years later or whatever. Several years after this, when um the first center for uh research on premature babies opened, Cooney shortly after closed down his show. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, I'm done. My work my work's been done. <laughs> People have gotten the idea that we need to like do more for these Babies, I can retire. He stepped backward into the mist <laughs> and ascended into carny heaven. Yeah. Yeah. This is like the most crazy thing to me. <laughs> it's just like, it's one of those things you hear it initially and like, oh my god, this is the worst thing. This it's, is like it's people- It's so exploitative. We are like, yeah, we're, we're stealing babies and we're and like, putting them on display. It's, it's still exploitative, but it's at least medically helpful. Yeah. Is this good? Is this bad? Like, you're still like putting these children on display- but uh, the lady that actually that was on History Detectives, and this was, like, about her, she personally said, she's like, well, I wouldn't be here, probably, yeah. if they wouldn't have taken me and put me on display at this fair. I probably would not be alive. And it was kind of like, well, dang. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that sums it up. Um. See, other things that happened at the fair. June through November of 1933, uh, there was a terrible outbreak of amoebic dysentery. Now that's a souvenir. Uh, You're going to make some real memories with that. Uh, There were a thousand cases and 98 people died. Okay. From June to November. Uh Uh-huh. Five months. Uh Uh-huh. 
Why are people still going after one month? Well, it took them a really... Oh, for, first off, think about how many people are there every day. Thou thousand yeah, a, cases in that many months, and like opening day, there were 30,000 people there. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, the, I crunched the numbers. The, the total attendance was roughly 40% of uh, uh, the American population at the time. Yeah. I mean, that's not counting people who went... 50 times or whatever but that's that's how the numbers like yeah um so they eventually uh figured out that it was defective plumbing uh things that i'll had, say th things that hadn't been installed or were corroding that had uh sewage going into drinking water at two hotels it wasn't yeah. actually at the fair it was at two hotels uh, the Auditorium Hotel and the Congress Hotel, which we talked about. How many times we got to tell you not to stay there? How many ghosts are from the poops? Oh, no, poop ghosts. <laughs> not poop ghosts. <laughs> now, many people were not diagnosed properly um, because the disease was pretty unfamiliar to U.S. doctors, actually. By November, I hope they were familiar. <laughs> uh, a lot of people... They thought had like appendicitis and were operated on and then died because that wasn't what it was and they oh. just made things worse. <laughs> um, but they they figured it out. They got it under control. It stopped. It didn't come back. <laughs> it's okay. Another thing that was really cool uh, was the Homes of Tomorrow exhibition. This is sounding straight up Epcot. I don't know. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it was one of the most noteworthy uh, exhibits. Um, there were 12 houses that were shown that showed futuristic ways of design, technology, mm -hmm. um, just innovative materials being used, and so on. There are five houses that are still standing. And this is, like, the coolest thing. They are not standing here. They are not in Chicago. They are uh, a part of the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore in Beverly Shores, Indiana. The five houses that are um, still standing. Let me tell you which ones they are. There was the Weibolt Rowstone House. Uh, it was a steel frame clad with experimental material at the time, Rowstone, uh, which was a mix of shale, limestone, and alkali. Uh, and it could be produced in a variety of colors, uh, to exact dimensions and it was this really exciting material that they were super pumped about and like this will be game changer it's the building material of the future yes yeah well one thing it was not quite as durable as they said and was severely deteriorated by the 50s oh um but some of the rose stone does still exist on the house where it stands now it's just like been covered in other materials to make sure it doesn't <laughs> deteriorate uh, there was also the Florida Tropical House. It was a very bright pink house uh, sure. that was very much built for a warm climate with like open terraces and multiple balconies and just a and very Barbie it, dream house. And they put it on the Chicago Lakeshore. Yes. There was the Cypress Log Cabin mm -hmm. uh, designed to show the uses and quality of Cypress. A very pleasant smelling home, I guess. <laughs> At the fair, it was like there was a lot of, uh, like, mountain log cabin atmosphere added to it with, like, bridges and fences and stuff and, mm -hmm. like, animals carved into things. <laughs> a lot of that doesn't still exist, but uh, there was the House of Tomorrow. Yeah. Where the first floor it's was... entirely made of plastic. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it was a garage. 
and an airplane hangar because they really thought everyone in the future was going to have an airplane. <laughs> so we got to have an airplane hangar. That's really uh, optimistic at a time where most people didn't have boots without holes in them. Or food. <laughs> the other two floors were the house. This uh, is just so uniquely American. You've got the Dust Bowl at the same time as everybody's going to have an aeroplane. What yeah. are you talking about? What is your deal? We as a country love to be in denial <laughs> about what is going on and who's starving. Oh, there's... There's another great picture from uh, the 60s, I think, that has an Apollo launch in the background, but the foreground is this just shack with this incredibly impoverished uh, uh, family living in it in, like, the Florida swamps. Yeah. That's basically this, but with a lot more miles in between. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so this house, architect George Fred Keck designed it, and... Uh, it had glass walls. He gave it glass walls. So don't throw stones. <laughs> and uh, he defied uh, mechanical engineers who were like, hey, you're putting glass in this house. It can't be heated. What are you thinking? So he put in like floor to ceiling curtain system. And then like the solar heat gain ended up reducing the need for like heating. I'll say, gosh. But in the summer, it had too much heat. And it, the air conditioner, which was brand new and, like, new technology stuff, could not <laughs> handle it. Like, and it couldn't keep up with it. And the home of tomorrow, you'll hate it. That's why you're going to fly in your airplane, to get to a better house. Yeah. Then there was the Armco Faro house. Um, it was constructed, constructed with corrugated steel panels. The home of tomorrow will look like a shanty town. <laughs> and then the panels were clad with porcelain enameled steel panels. And uh, it very much inspired the post-World War II, like, prefab housing stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was actually one of, like, the only houses there that fit the bill of something that could be, like, mass-produced and mass-used for mm -hmm. the everyday public. Well, look, this exhibition is just, like, the, the brainstorm period. There's no bad ideas. Just throw it all out there. Well, there's only one anyone can use. <laughs> it's, it's just how it goes. So, uh, one thing is interesting. So, where these houses ended up, I said, is Beverly Shores. Uh, Beverly Shores started as a planned resort community. Uh, in 1900, uh, the rail service from South Bend to Chicago, which is now the South Shore Line, uh -huh. uh, started. Now, in 1925, uh, upgrades were made to stations and trains and tourism was encouraged. Uh, Frederick H. Bartlett Company, uh, one of Chicago's largest real estate developers, bought 3,600 acres in 1927. They plotted thousands of home sites. Now, when the Great Depression hit, many um, of those plots were not developed. Robert Bartlett, uh, Frederick's brother, purchased the properties in 1933 uh, and named them after his daughter, Beverly. Aww. Uh, so he continued to develop the area, roads, schools, properties. Uh, he is the one who purchased and relocated the five structures from the fair. Oh. His idea was that um, you know, they were a very popular thing. They would bring people to Beverly Shores to see them. They would encourage people to check out the community. It'd bring yeah. more people in to help develop it. 
Uh, the four, four of the houses were moved by barge, and the <laughs> Cypress house was dismantled and moved by truck. Well, that's the advantage of a log cabin, I suppose. <laughs> now, unfortunately, the, the houses really didn't help, like, boost, uh, Beverly Shores. Mm-hmm. Beverly Shores is, is a community, and it is established and everything now, but it didn't, it didn't quite offer him the boost he hoped for. Uh, in 1966, the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore was established. And in the 70s, they had a movement to purchase all the homes in Beverly Shores and try to make it part of the lakeshore. <laughs> that didn't happen, um, but many things were acquired. The houses were acquired. Mm-hmm. And they are on the National Historic Registry of Houses and all that. Now, it, they were abandoned for a really long time. For a while, they were slated to be demolished because they didn't have the funds to keep up with it. So what ended up happening was the uh, Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore ended up partnering with the Historic Landmarks Foundation of Indiana. And they are leased through them to private individuals who have like 30-year leases on them. Now that's rent and control, let me tell you. <laughs> these people are leasing it, but they are leased to people who have the money and funds to refurbish them, to mm-hmm. completely renovate them back into what they were. And it's only uh, in the past couple of years, actually, that these houses are finally getting uh, almost finished. Yay! Some of them are still uh, being worked on, but they're coming to a point where of almost completion. Um, and it's all because of... These partnerships and these people coming in and spending their money on these properties (laughs) that they don't actually own. One thing that's really cool is that once a year, these houses are opened up for a tour. And that is coming up in October. And we're going. We're going to go. We're going to go. We're going to do everything in our power to go. Tickets go on sale in September. We are going to try to get it so we can go and tour these houses. If you are super jazzed about that or just in the Chicagoland, northern Indiana area... I don't know. Fan meetup? I don't know. I guess. We'll figure it out. Uh, you gotta buy the tickets ahead of time. But we're gonna go. So check it out. Uh, it is on the, um, through the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. It sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as I said, they only open it up once a year. Uh, people live in these houses the rest of the year, so you can't trespass. <laughs> like. Now, I'm excited to find out if the Cypress House is perhaps on a hill. Yeah. And if so, whether you can jump around. Jump around. Jump around. Jump up, jump up, and get down. So, a couple more things. With the exception of the Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable. Yeah? Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, he had a, there was a cabin reproduction. Ah, um, but the thing is, it was originally credited as the Kinsey Cabin. Oh. Chicago's first white settler who bought it from du Sable. Oh. Well. <laughs> What's up with that? Well, I guess I take that back. There was really nothing about the African-American tr- contribution to Chicago development. Nothing. Not one thing. Because they took that away. Mm-hmm. So, um, as I said, there were a lot of, like, racist displays. Mm-hmm. Um, there was what they called the Darkest Africa show. <laughs> there there was a show? Yeah. What, what is in the show? Oh, my God. I imagine a lot of tribal yep. please listen to my air quote drums yep. and costumes yeah there's also a lot of of course for the time period discrimination on employment and refusal of service yeah now uh, a lot of people were like well we're gonna boycott it but some 
use the fair as a way to get ground on some better treatment. Yeah. You want to talk about progress, let's make some progress. Yeah. So some people with the help of the NAACP and a handful of state legislators uh, held up legislation that authorized the fair to continue that second year. Mm -hmm. They finally let it go when the fair management agreed to wording that forbid discrimination on the fairgrounds. (laughs) Now... In a way, like, I'm sure there was still discrimination and still things happening, but that is a huge, like, step. Yeah. Especially in the time towards better treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big win for them. I think, I mean, I looked this up years ago uh-huh. now, but I think they eventually did rename the cabin, the, the Dusab cabin. Yeah. Rather than the Kinsey cabin. I didn't see anything on that, but there was a lot of cross-referencing of many, many things. <laughs> We know whose cabinet was. Yes. Yeah. The 1893 World's Fair had federal legislation mandating the inclusion of uh, women's exhibits. There's a great episode about that in the Devil in the White City book. Yeah. Um, Now, in 1933, there was no congressional mandate for that. (laughs) Thus, there was very, very... They can vote now. Whatever. There is extremely little representation of women, especially outside of the Midway shows, which were So not... once you take out the nudie dancing. Yeah. There was, there was no women's building, which was something that was very big mm-hmm. at... Um, kind of, that's another way there was kind of like a big shift. Mm-hmm. So much for century of progress. <laughs> so I guess progress isn't always in one direction, huh? Yeah. So, so as we wrap up, we're going to talk about like what still exists yay and aside from those houses there's not much (laughs) uh the site where the fair was is now northerly island previously there was meg's field uh which was the airport that was demolished overnight by daily second daily second daily son of daily (laughs) um and like mccormick place is now over there there's Mm -hmm. like short trails there's a marina Um, um it's much more become public land Shed Aquarium was adjacent to the site. It predates yeah. the fair by a few years and is still there to this day. Yes. Um, so things that still are on the site. Mm-hmm. Uh, the statue of Christopher Columbus in Grant Park yeah. was erected during then. It was uh, ra- The money was raised by the Chicago Italian-American community. Mm-hmm. And that was put up during the fair. And the main thing. The thing that I love above all things. Watch your words when you say that. I don't love what it represents, but I love that it still exists there. Okay. That it's like a secret hidden thing. Uh Uh-huh. And what is it, pray tell? It is the Balbo Monument, which was given to Chicago by Mussolini Mm -hmm. to uh, honor General Italo Balbo's uh, 1933 transatlantic flight. And it's there. It's still there. Now, it's a little off the beaten path. Well, the paved path. Again, when I said I like it, I like that it still exists. <laughs> I like that this is the one thing from the fair that's still there. And it's a freaking gift from Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can tell it's a fascist monument because it has the fascies carved into it. Uh-huh. I looked up more about this monument. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever did before. If you Try me. Okay. So the monument consists of a pillar, 
And the pillar mm-hmm. is approximately 2,000 years old. Yeah, an actual yeah, Roman. It's an actual pillar. Uh, Roman pillar. Uh, the, I believe dating was uh, 117 38 BC, somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, and then it has a contemporary stone base. Uh, now the pillar, Late Republic, early Imperial Rome. Yes. It was taken from Porta Marina in Ostia. I don't know words. Um, it was taken by Mussolini. Now, the message on the base is in Italian. And would you like to read what it says? Sure. Uh, it is in Italian and English. And English, The yes. English side is mostly worn away. Yes. I do not know if that's from weather or from scouring. I would not be surprised if it's from scouring, because there's definitely stuff that has been broken off that monument yeah, on purpose. Yeah, specifically the axe heads of the fascists. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yes, please read this. This column, 20 centuries old, erected on the beach of Ostia, port of Imperial Rome, to safeguard the fortunes and victories of the Roman triremes, Fascist Italy, by command of Benito Mussolini, presents to Chicago exaltation symbol memorial of the Atlantic squadron led by Balbo that with Roman daring flew across the ocean in the 11th year of the fascist era. Yeah. Like, that's not... Hi, that's not pussyfooting. That's not no, beating around the bush. No. <laughs> the eleventh year of the fascist era. So the monument arrived in Chicago in nineteen thirty-four, mm-hmm. so for the second year of the fair. And it was placed in front of the Italian pavilion. The column still stands in exact original place. It's hard to move. It's a two thousand yeah. year old Roman column. Now, part of the reason this is my favorite thing, okay? Not because it's fascist. Not because of that. <laughs> Just going to be clear about that. Didn't know I had to explain that. I thought people would know about me. It's a it's crazy that, world we live in. It sits on this piece of park between Soldier's Field and this marina, right along the Lakeshore Trail, and people just run by it mm-hmm. all the time. But here's the thing. It's behind a fence. There's like a fence that blocks it from the trail. So unless you're walking on the grass, you can't get to it. There's no sign. There's no plaque. There's (laughs) nothing that's like, hey, here's this piece of history from the World's Fair. Because Mm -hmm. no one wants you to know that Mussolini gave us a gift. (laughs) And that we accepted it. And signed it to you, thanks, from fascism. Yep. Yep. After World War II, the Italian ambassador uh, to the U.S. recommended, like, all symbols of admiration for fascist Italy be removed. But it lasted. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where, like, the, the axe heads went away. But it's still there. When Balbo arrived, it was huge. The Italian-American community of Chicago welcomed him with open arms. There were huge We got parades. a street. He's there got a street. There is still, to this day, Balbo Avenue. Yeah. And what I also think is so crazy, like, the fact that there is this ancient pillar on it, and it just sits there being weathered mm-hmm. by Chicago lakefront winter storms, and it's still there. And it, it's also a sign of the sort of ridiculous self-conscious pageantry of fascism mm-hmm. that they would take this symbol of the Roman Republic yeah. and be like, yay, dictators, we made this. Yeah. We're totally the same thing. Like, aside from the Columbus statue, which I don't really, like, count because it was a statue that was made there. It wasn't a part of anything else. Mm -hmm. It is, like, the only thing still standing. On the site. On the site. And in a way, like, I get that you want to distance yourself (laughs) from it. But I think it is such a shame that 
there's not anything that like talks about it being there. there there's not a plaque. There's nothing that's right. like this was a site of something like this huge event. Mm-hmm. Here's what remains of it. Can you imagine if we like left the the Zeppelin behind with and painted it Hitler loves Chicago? <laughs> yeah, I get it. Like you don't want that. You know, it's tricky. It's sticky. It's tricky. It's tricky. Like I I I get it. It I mean, we, when we found out it was there several years ago, we, we just had to we go. had to go and we it took like we had to search a bit. Mm-hmm. We knew the area, but we didn't know exactly where it was. And it was one of those things where it's, like, kind of hidden behind trees. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, wait, that's it. This is it. (laughs) And it's just there. And it's so close to a World War II veterans memorial. It's so close. So close. Instead, it's along, like, the police memorial. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're ever by Soldier's Field, by Museum Campus. You're really close to the Mussolini Monument. Check it out. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I that's guess where we're that, ending. We're going to take some letters. Yeah, that's all I got. We'll be right back. Okay, so we're back. Hey, everybody. And before we get to mail, I have a question for you. Did you learn anything? I did. I did. I mean, besides a lot of specific facts, I think what I came away with is just that this fair always seems like the, the forgotten stepchild of Chicago's two world's fairs. Yeah. And the idea that they thought of themselves that way. Yeah. Like, have some pride. Come on. Yeah. I I said earlier that uh, the Columbian Exhibition may have invented modernity. And uh, the the Century of Progress certainly did not have the the wide-reaching global influence. Mm -hmm. But it still had a lot of incredible stuff. And just a big, colorful middle finger to the Depression itself, I I think, is really endearing. And, And you know what? Stand tall. Century of Progress yeah. exhibition. You earned it. You done good. One thing that's interesting, like so, the 1893 fair. Ca- cameras weren't as big back then. No, and stuff. You know, there's very few images left of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I found out though, but the, apparently a lot of uh, the older fairs charged camera admission. Uh huh. And that fair was one of them where, like, if you wanted to bring a camera. If you were like a press person, it was like three times as much mm-hmm. as a ticket. The There is a brochure I came across for the Century of Progress that is a Kodak brochure. And it's talking about all the like <laughs> great places to take pictures at the fair. Mm-hmm. And it says on it, no admission for cameras. <laughs> and I think it's interesting. Like if you dig, you can come across a lot of like people's home pictures oh, uh, yeah. for the fair. There's a few things we're going to link that I came across. Um, a lot of different exhibitions that I didn't talk about there. Mm-hmm. But for all the film that, like, was taken, for, like, the video that exists that was made to promote it, it's amazing that it isn't more known. Yeah. Like, I don't, I feel like a lot of people don't even know what ever happened. <laughs> Yet, 
the fair that has very little left of it, like, mm-hmm. to even see what it looked like, people know about. Right, right. Um, and it's just so interesting. I guess they just needed more serial killers at, at uh, yeah, the that 33 helps. fair. that helps. The amoebic dysentery didn't uh, quite get the same bang for its buck. Well, you can't arrest amoebic dysentery, even though it killed way more people. Yeah. It it was its own type of murder hotel. (laughs) 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 Well, with that, let's get to the letters. Peter writes in to take me to task for saying that uh, Holmes is the most famous person from the Victorian era. Peter puts forward uh, plenty of other figures like Isambard Kingdom Brunel, the engineer, Florence Nightingale, uh, John Barry, the physician, and even the infamous Cecil Rhodes. Now, I would say that all of these people have a claim to maybe the same notability or, or even effect on the world as Holmes by dint of all being real people. Yeah. I argued for the effect of a fictional character, but it's going to be a soft effect no matter what. These people existed, sure. Mm -hmm. But as far as fame goes, no. Could you pick out any of these people's pictures in a lineup? No. (laughs) A few of them, I'm like, who are they? Florence Nightingale gets closest. I I know who she is, but... If we're talking about, like, straight up, hashtag, work your brand, it's gotta be Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. I, I stand confident in my claims but yes thank you very much for your letter peter i I hope you don't feel called out it's very thoughtful and i would definitely recommend people look into these very real and very uh interesting lives and i think part of why they're not as famous is because they're real people yeah because you know they they come with flaws real things are messy like Um, you said a few times earlier today i was reading an interesting article the other day that was talking about that people forget history Mm -hmm. and it was all about like kind of like repeating the past and whatnot but that is very true though people forget history they -hmm. forget real people they forget real events it kind of all blends together fiction however has this way of like staying (laughs) in a way that real people don't Mm -hmm. even if they're famous even if they're written about a fictional and, character just like... And sometimes we don't even know what the story of the real person is, like Dr. John Barry, who was mm-hmm. mentioned. We don't know if John Barry was a boundary-breaking trans man or a boundary-breaking woman who posed as a man and never broke character because she would not be allowed to work if anyone found out. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. And, I mean, either way, their work was incredible, uh, aside from their demographic firstness. But we don't know which first to award them. Yeah. But yes, thank you very much, Peter. Colin sent us an email. Uh, Their favorite fair is the one in Pasadena, Texas, called the Strawberry Festival. And that that is our prompt for this episode. Favorite fair. Favorite fair. Uh, It is essentially a regular fair, but it has a ton of strawberry-themed rides and food. And most importantly, the world's largest strawberry shortcake that weighed 10,000 pounds. I could eat it. I want to come to this fair. (laughs) Uh, Favorite fictional detective would be Harry Dresden. uh, And favorite play is Dog Sees God, Burt vs. Royal, which is a Peanuts fan fiction set in high school after Snoopy gets rabies and kills Woodstock. Fun for the whole family. Yeah, take your kids to see that, everyone. (laughs) Thank you, Colin. Thanks, Colin. Uh, Claritic writes in with a bit of Sherlock Holmes history that I didn't mention. 
an Arsene Lupin story called Sherlock Holmes Arrives Too Late, where that's basically what happens. Uh, Lupin, the gentleman thief, steals something. Sherlock arrives too late. It's the, the big Freddy versus Jason of its day. Doyle wasn't a fan and threatened legal action, so in future editions, the character is referred to as Herlock Sholmes. <laughs> and then Hamlock Shears. <laughs> Which is apparently just different enough. Just different enough. Now, both Sherlock and Herlock are in the public domain, so maybe he could meet himself? I, I guess. I guess so. Which has probably also happened in the I'm big... I'm sh- sure there's a lot of fan fiction about that. The all-encroaching mass that is Sherlockania. <laughs> yep. So thank you very much, Claritic. James sent us an email. Their favorite fair is one they've told us about before because we had a slightly similar past, which was Sawdust Days, which sounded amazing. Yeah. Least favorite fair uh, is probably the one James's grandmother's church holds because he broke his elbow in second grade. It's the personal touches, I yeah, think, that, yeah. that make history come alive. Yeah, it really is. And James had a question. Which yeah. I guess is to you, because it was your episode. Sure. Would you say that Holmes was also the focal point for more progressive fan bases around most work? Yeah, James provides the context. It's, it's because I said something about uh, Holmes representing this middle-class, self-made morality, mm-hmm. often against the, the inherited wealthy folk. Mm-hmm. And I would say no. Because the the middle class morality he was proposing is a squarely Victorian one, one of the most regressive and repressive moralities in Western history. I mean, I, I talked up Hound of the Baskervilles in the episode, but it has an amateur craniometrist, and that's treated as a, a silly but harmless pursuit like stamp collecting, never mind just the, the absurd racist undercurrent to all of craniometry uh it's and and it's complicated by stuff like the progressive ish and and very easy to turn legitimately progressive gender roles of a scandal in bohemia but that's because things are messy but no I, i would not consider holmes himself a progressive figure and uh fandom is what you make it you know yeah yeah so thanks james thanks james Ralph writes in with a uh, rapid-fire lightning round of past prompts. So here we go. Favorite superhero, Static Shock from the Milestone imprint. Ralph's entry point was the Static Shock TV series, which I enjoyed as a young one myself. Favorite episode of ours, the first. Yeah! You can't go wrong as far as, uh, you know, legacy, I guess. Yeah. It laid the groundwork. Favorite sports moment? Uh, watching the Seahawks win the Super Bowl and, and Ralph and his grandmother being pleasantly surprised at how well they did. <laughs> of course, I, I imagine Ralph is from uh, the, the Pacific Northwest from this statement. It also made everyone happy for a while in the area. That's good. I, it That's probably nice. would, yeah. <laughs> Favorite amusement park ride, the Timberhawk Wind Roller Coaster from Wild Wave slash Enchanted Parkways. Favorite moral panic, Jack Thompson's anti-video game crusade. I think we had a few people uh, say that one already. I feel like so, yes. Finally, favorite fair, the Pouliap Fair in Washington, now known as the Washington State Fair. Hey, I, I guess I was right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much, Ralph. 
Final Gamer sent us an email, and I'm so glad to know other people love Tintin too, Final Gamer. I love the movie. I've always wanted to read some of those oh, stories. I had a bunch. I have a bunch of them back at my mom's. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Next yeah, time you go, bring back Christmas. Okay, we got to take an empty suitcase. We'll bring <laughs> we'll bring those back in like my 500 Archie comics. Yeah, yeah. Final Gamer tells us how. They visited J.M. Barry's house, uh, which is pretty cool. And the town that it is in also has a rock music festival fair called Bonfest, which celebrates the life of Bon Scott, the lead singer of ACDC, also born in the same town as Barry. Better than Bono Fest, I gotta say. Freaking Bono. <laughs> oh, and Final Gamer has a story for you. Yay, uh, stories! The world's o- oldest known comic book was created in Glasgow and was titled The Glasgow Looking Glass. Uh, it was a satire comic strip that poked fun at publican aristocracy and everything from fashion trends to politics. Uh, it was made in 1825, which predates uh, London's punch and the first American comic strip. It's pretty cool. So thank you, Final Gamer. Thank you very much. Arion writes in, uh, I think for the first time. Uh-huh. So welcome to the show, well, Arion. Yeah. Uh, to mention a few favorite detectives. Ms. Fisher of 1920s Melbourne, Australia, a glamorous lady with a knack for getting into and then sorting out the trouble. And Brother Cadfail of 1100s England, a crusading knight turned monk, apothecary, solver of curious cases. Uh, both of those also fictional. I'm kind of surprised that nobody wrote in to say William of Baskerville from The Name of the Rose, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> and Arion's favorite fair is the Fair Use Clause. Ha ha ha. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which uh, is something that allows a lot of people to make some very interesting and creative works. Yeah. So where would we be without it? I wouldn't be around without fairies. Arian's also planning to go to the lo- local Renaissance Festival, so that might become the favorite fair. Maybe, maybe. Like, Renaissance Festivals are great things. The two I've been to, yes. It's good stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Arian. Uh, Rebecca sent us an email. Uh, their favorite fair is probably the 1904 World's Fair, uh, because that's where the ice cream cone was invented, and Rebecca loves ice cream. It's a good reason to like a fair. I was going to say, don't we all? But then I remembered we probably have lactose intolerant listeners. They can still eat the cone. (laughs) Put like pudding in there. Have the scraps like a dog. Cupcakes in it. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. Also wanted to mention another detective, uh, one of their favorite detectives, Henry Morgan from Forever, which was a TV show that did not last very long. We watched an episode or two. That's the one with Ian Groffid and he can't die, or like every time he dies, he gets resurrected in the river. Oh! Yeah. Yeah! He's a medical examiner, but he does detective work. That was a strange show. Yeah. Um, It's our fault it failed, I'm sorry. Sorry we didn't watch it. So thank you, Rebecca. Thanks, Rebecca. In our last episode, Rebecca told us Uh that she shared the show with her dad. Uh And you know who wrote our next letter? Rebecca's Rebecca's dad! dad! Hi, Bill. Hi! Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Uh, Bill shares another uh, Sherlock Holmes pastiche that deserves note. The Martian Crown Jewels, which follows the adventures of a Martian uh, detective named Psylock, uh, who lives on the street of those who prepare nourishment in ovens. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Mars. 
Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a locked room mystery that depends on accurate space physics, which is really fun. His favorite fair uh-huh. is the 1964 World's Fair, yeah. which we mentioned a little bit in passing in this one. And in the past. The, uh, he was a six-year-old little shaver and saw that the Sinclair Oil Company's vending machines that injection-molded dinosaurs... Moldoramas! Moldoramas! And those machines still exist. Yes. I mean, maybe not those individual ones, but that is still a thing. Yes, and it is, uh, they are all over, um, this area of the country, Chicago and Michigan, because Moldorama, uh, machines are owned by two companies right now, one in Florida and one based in Chicago, so if you go to, like, the Sears Tower here, mm-hmm. any of the zoos, the museums, you uh, are going to find multiple Moldoramas. We, we mentioned MSI earlier, and uh-huh. it's chock full of them. Tons of them. I love Moldorama machines. <laughs> they make me so happy. They also feature uh, uh, pretty centrally in Wonderfalls. Yeah, they do. They do. And that is an, also a show that was very short-lived from people not watching it and having a sucky time slot. I feel uh, the pain, Rebecca. But other 64 exhibition exhibits, uh, Bell Telephone had a six-foot-tall tic-tac-toe machine that was unbeatable. Uh, Westinghouse had an exhibit showing how they were going to produce energy by fusion. And uh, Bill does not know what was in the General Motors exhibit because Rebecca's grandfather thought it was ridiculous to charge $5 to admit a family. It's kind of a lot. It's kind of a lot. So thank you very much, Bill. Uh, Andrew sent us an email. Andrew's favorite fair is the 2016 Maryland Renaissance Fair. Better than all previous years, I guess. Because they and their wife had their marriage vows renewed by King Henry. I bet he didn't smell very good, (laughs) considering the intervening centuries. (laughs) Favorite detective is Tracer Bullet, uh, one of Calvin's many alter egos. And uh, Andrew wants to give us a shout-out for our show's excellent intro and outro music. Mm-hmm. Our composer does great work. Uh, they go by the name Thylacinus. You can find their SoundCloud link in the show notes of every single episode. Mm-hmm. And you can listen to more of their work at sixfeetsunder.com. That's F-E-A-T-S, uh, an actual play show that I help organize. Yeah. The Mouse Guard campaign is live scored every episode by them. It's very cool. So thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Flavafibe is a bit of a Sherlock Holmes obsessive and had some more recommendations for different adaptations for people to try. Personal favorite, Jeremy Brett, but also wanted to recommend the BBC radio adaptations written by uh, Burt Coles and starring Clive Marison as Holmes and Michael Williams as Watson. I kind of feel like I dropped the ball in not mentioning significant Watsons yeah. in the episode. Please forgive me. <laughs> These are full dramatizations, not just like audiobooks, but they are incredibly accurate to the original stories, and also, uh, at the same time, smooth out some of the more troublesome stories, like Three Gables. But Flavor Five's favorite fair, the Erie County Fair. Uh, as a kid, the whole family would go see the Demolition Derby, because hey, cars smashing into each other, heck yes. Yeah. So thanks very much, Flavafibe. Bob sent us an email, uh, and Bob was super excited about this prompt because their favorite fair is very near and dear to them, and that is the Bloomberg Fair, the largest fair in Pennsylvania that has been going for over 150 years, almost continuously. Hooray! Yeah, which is really awesome. Uh, 
this family has a tradition of going. It always falls around uh, Bob's birthday, Aww. and it is great fun. Thank you, Bob, for the pictures of your doggo Sam as well. Sam is very cute. So thanks, Bob. Well, thank you very much to everyone who wrote in. Uh, if you want to write a letter to get it read on the air, you can contact us at... HistoryHoneysPodcast at gmail.com. Yes, yes. And you can give us show suggestions, comments, questions, uh, and also fill in our regular prompts. Uh-huh. What's the prompt? Oh, well, for next episode, I want to hear everybody's favorite prophecies. Favorite prophecies? Yes. What are you talking about? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? Yes, I would. Like, I'm going to be talking about something real, but like favorite detective one, I'm curious what the, like, actual prophecy, fictional prophecy ratio is going to be. Yeah. So, hey, surprise me. And you can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, all at History Honeys. Mm-hmm. While you're online, giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, etc. does so much to help our show. Yes. We appreciate every single one, and... We've got some uh, milestones coming up. Yeah. By the time this is up, we might have our 300th like on Facebook. <gasps> what? We're in the high 290s right now at the time of recording. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. So thank you all thank so you. much. Thank you. You can also tell a friend. Yeah. You can uh, be like Rebecca. And tell your dad. And tell your dad. Who would you rather have spending time with you on the long drive to a family reunion? Than a us. Actual family or podcasts listened to us. by family members. Ta-da! <laughs> so yes, tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell the people at the dog park. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I told someone at the dog park the other day. Do you think they're listening right now? Probably not. I did not tell them what the name of our podcast was, just that we did a podcast. <sighs> oh, I was kind of bad about that's that. That's the important part, so don't, though. don't be like me. Please tell them the name of the podcast. There's a lot of them. Oh, no, I'm listening to my dad wrote a porno. This is so wrong. <laughs> that's the opposite thing. Things are going to get awkward if they think that's my podcast when I show back up at the dog park. These people have English accents. That's not the <laughs> right people. Someone is grilling, like, right outside our door, <laughs> and it smells so good. Well, we have to go make friends. So with that, <laughs> I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your, your honey. honey.